with us today, Justin Hill. Justin has had a travel-filled life, born in Grand Bahama, educated in York, University at Durham, and then worked for the VSO in China and Eritrea, and now lives in God's own county, Yorkshire. He's a prolific writer, and he's here today to talk to us about Harold Hardrada, the subject of his 2016 book, Viking Fire. Welcome, Justin. Hi, good morning. Um, Prolific. I'm not sure prolific, but uh, I wish I was more prolific. You even have Instagram posts every day talking about your writing, which are brilliant because I sit and watch those and it gives me inspiration to actually go and write. <laughs> oh, that's fabulous. Yeah, I I just kind of I put the videos out every day. It's kind of like a, a, a vlog of, you know, writing a novel. Um, and I do sometimes worry that I'm just kind of, you know, it's kind of the same again and you're just doing the same stuff every day. Um, so I'm, every time I hear someone watches them, um, I'm delighted. Yeah. Uh, they're finding a good audience. Yeah, I always look out for them. I find them, they, they're just nice little snippets. People say they're very soothing. I don't know if they fall asleep to them uh, <laughs> mm. or just have a chill moment in their day. But good, yeah, brilliant. We're here to talk about Harold Hardrada, who is the main character in your book, Viking Fire. Yeah. What attracted you to his story? Yeah, well, I should, I should probably go back a little bit and say that this novel was originally going well, it is originally a part of a series of novels that looks at the Battle of Hastings. I was living in Ireland for a few years when we were having our, our first kids. And uh, the Irish like to joke about um, 800 years of English oppression. Um, and I think in, in 2011, when Queen Elizabeth came to Ireland, she talks about, you know, she talks about 800 years of English oppression. And I kind of thought, well, the first couple of years, 100 years weren't, weren't English. They were Norman oppression. And then it got me thinking, actually, well, of all the countries who suffered most under the Normans, in a way, it was the English. The English lost the most. And um, we lost, you know, kind of old English uh, language, literature. You know, English is the long, old English written literature was already 600 years old by the time of the Norman conquest. And in a sense, that's all been lost to us. You know, we, we have a few bits of stuff in translation, but um, we don't have much of it. And so they got me thinking about the Battle of Hastings and... I was looking at writing a, a single novel about the Battle of Hastings and just trying to update it from kind of myths to reality. And then it struck me that you couldn't write the Battle of Hastings without talking about the other conquest, because we all know 1066 um, is kind of a seminal moment in English and in many ways British history. But none of us know about 1016, which is the other conquest of England. And that's by the Vikings and by Canute. And so I thought, well, you can't tell the story of what happens in 1066 without telling the story of what happens in 1016. So this was a series of books that was looking at um, of telling that story. And the first one starts in the reign of Ethelred the Unready. And it essentially tells the story of how uh, the Vikings conquered England in 1016. And the main character there is Godwin, and that book is called Shield Wall. And I always saw it as a trilogy. 
I went back and forth with my editor on what where to go next. And Harold Hardrada, obviously, is the other main character in 1066. You have William the Conqueror, um, Harold Godwinson, and Harold Hardrada. And in a sense, he's often a kind of a, a footnote to 1066. Whereas it seems to me, if you were a betting man in 1066, the, the wise money was on Harold Hardrada. He was by far the most impressive of the three candidates the throne of England. And so uh, I really wanted to tell his story. And in a way, his story is told because we have the saga published in English as, you know, King Harold's saga, but it's it's part of the Hames Kriegler by Snorri Sturluson. And uh, his story is kind of told, but it's told in a way that is very Norway-centric. I was looking at this, and uh, this, is, this is how it starts, the, the Harold Hardrada uh, section. Uh, Harold Sigurdsson was a half brother of King Olaf the Saint. They had the same mother. Harold took part in the Battle of Stickelstad, where King Olaf was killed. Spoilers. Uh, Harold was wounded in the battle, but managed to escape along with many of the fugitives. And that is the first 15 years of Harold Hardrada's life, <laughs> where he has the same mother as, as King Olaf the Saint and is wounded in battle. And so I thought, OK, the, the whole kind of Hames Kriegler is massively skewed um, <laughs> to, in a sense, stuff that Story Snorrison knew because it was kind of native to Norway. Um, I think of the, the hundred chapters in King Harold's saga. Um, the first one, he's a fugitive. The second one, he goes to Russia. And the third one, he goes to Constantinople. You know, in the fifth chapter, and these chapters are prose shorts, really. I mean, they're barely a page long. He's then in Sicily. He's um, in, you know, he's in Sicily until chapter 10. So really in a book, you're kind of up to page 15 and he's already in Sicily. Goes to Constantinople, goes to Jerusalem, is in prison, you know. So by chapter 19, he's back in Norway. You have kind of 19 to 79 is his Norway years. 80 to 92 is his Battle of Stamford Bridge. And 93 to 101 is his kind of denouement and, and setting him in context. And I thought, actually, the way the saga looks at this is completely the wrong way around. The really interesting stuff happens on his, his early life. And so I set out to do a novel that told that. He certainly had an interesting early life from the age of about 15 anyway. So... It's something we've heard before occasionally that somebody very young is either abandoned or after a battle is is involved with his captors and so on. So in Harold Hardrada's case, how did he cope with this experience of, of having to leave where he, he was brought up and go to really quite not strange parts of the world, but certainly foreign parts of the world that he wouldn't have been familiar with? Yeah, I mean, this, I think, is very interesting because... Uh, he's a Norwegian Viking, and the Norwegian Vikings, their world was kind of what is now Scotland and what is now Ireland and kind of the Lords of the Isles. So their their kind of their route to go a Viking was to go westwards. And his mm. his um, half brother Olaf had spent his kind of his formative years in England fighting and getting very rich in England and using that wealth to become king in Norway. And so, in a sense, Harold Hardrada, those early years before fifteen. Um, would have been spent listening to stories of England and France um, and, and and kind of fighting and campaigns there. And so naturally he would have assumed that that's where he would go. But the Danish conquest of England by Canute changes that because Canute is kind of overlord of the north, really, Scandinavia and England. And he's pushing into Norway. I mean, Norway's not Norway yet. It's still kind of fairly fragmented, but it's, it's, it's loosely what we can call Norway. And so... 
Canute is coming into conflict with uh, Harold's brother, King Olaf, and that ends up with the Battle of Stickelstad, where um, Olaf is killed and Harold is wounded and dragged from battle at the age of 15. And so uh, Harold was then forced to take the eastern route of the Vikings. And this was the one that Swedish Vikings would typically take. And it goes down to what is now Russia and Ukraine, or mainly Ukraine. And this is obviously um, it's kind of not what he's expecting. It's quite a shock. And uh, Ukraine and Russia are no less intimidating kind of a future than they are now. There, there was a, a fabulous experiment in about 10 years ago, a, a guy called Pavel Sabovnikov, and he, he spent some time in, in the Russian wilderness living as a kind of 10th century Viking. And there's a great quote about the guy. The guy who was running the experiment said that uh, eight months was enough for the experiment to yield results, but not so long that it will um, pathologically endanger the guy taking part. And I thought this is fantastic. So this is the world that Harold Hardrada, <laughs> 15, he's dragged from battle. He recuperates in a hut, um, escaping the men who are hunting him down. And the saga says he crosses the Kielback Mountains from Norway into Sweden in the face of winter, makes his way down to the the hall of the Swedish king, where he's kind of entertained for a few months and then sets forth off into what is now Ukraine and, and down towards Kiev. And it's a, a kind of it's a nascent nation state and it's based on fur trading and slavery and exploiting the local tribes who are kind of Latvians and Chens and Pechenegs and people. And so, that, you know, an extraordinary kind of tough childhood. And he disappears, you know, from the saga record for a couple of years um, and ends up in Kiev, probably about 19 or 20, already having kind of made a name for himself as as quite a, a leader of a war band. And really, in kind of modern terms, he's kind of the head of a, a mafia gang, <laughs> intimidating local tribesmen to give him slaves and furs. Yeah. The other thing that strikes me about, about that is that probably a lot of people don't realise that Kiev and the area around there, that, that sort of, I guess it was a kind of kingdom, was actually really important in Europe at this time. It was a prominent place. So it wasn't uncivilised at the heart. The hinterland would have been. I think we're just learning about the Eastern Vikings and just how important they were. Mm. Partly because of the Soviet times, a lot of the archaeology was cut off to the West. But the amount of silver that came up you know, from Baghdad and Constantinople, they were selling slaves to both you know, the the Muslim state and the Christian state, um, the amount of silver that came up into Europe effectively kind of kickstarts the Middle Ages and mm. and it kickstarts the economy because it, there's so much silver that actually you can suddenly have a, um, you know, a currency-based economy, which radically transforms Europe. Uh, and that's all because of the Vikings and the trade routes eastwards. Hordes that have been dug up in the eastern Baltic in Sweden and, and Denmark are just massive amounts of silver. And it's all coming from... Um, Baghdad, mm. which is it's kind of the Baghdad of the you know, Thousand and One Nights. It's um, Ali Baba's uh, kind of city, and it's incredibly rich. And this wealth just leaks up the uh, kind of Kiev and, and Ukraine river systems back into Europe. Mm. I suppose it was sort of the gateway from the east then, wasn't it? And a tough, tough environment. So young Harald Hardrada to be kind of making his living. And he's, you know, he's an exiled youth, rank and uh, noble status obviously help him, but his father is a petty king, and, and there are there are lots of you know chieftains or petty kings around Scandinavia at the time, and so you know he's got some advantages in life, mm. but he's really got to he's got to prove himself, and he proves himself in probably the toughest, still now one of the toughest environments in the world. Mm. That wasn't mm. enough for him, was it? Because then he goes off to Constantinople, 
and joins the Varangian Guard makes money and a reputation. Yeah, so the Varangian Guard, you know, are quite well known. Uh, there are there are two types of Varangian. There are the ones within the walls and without the walls. And when you turn up in, in Constantinople, you were put into the without the walls, which effectively meant you were just a kind of Viking shock trooper on the Byzantine Navy. And the Byzantine Navy were essentially fighting against the Saracens for control of the Mediterranean. We can infer that probably Harald first campaign was, you know, spent mm-hmm. in what's now the Greek islands, clearing them of uh, Muslim pirates, um, as they termed them. And so he again, he kind of proves himself in combat. And he rises up in fortunes. Probably by his mid-twenties, he is promoted and successful. And in the reconquest of Sicily, which is a huge venture by the Byzantine Empire, the shock troops are a thousand Varangians. And these are, you know, a thousand battle-hardened, mainly Swedish Vikings. And they're led by Harald Hardrada. And the saga goes into all these kind of, you know, stories about Harald Hardrada uh, arguing with the Byzantine general. Uh, because Harold knows that he's the he's the real power broker. That if you want to win a battle, you need him to be leading his troops into battle. And so again, you have this great story. People often talk about who would you cast as a film character, which actor would be in your film. And I, I kind of think Arnold Schwarzenegger would be a great <laughs> Harold Ardrada. He's got the kind of right combination of savvy nous and brute strength and charisma. So uh, Arnie effectively leading the reconquest of Sicily. And more than that, again, the saga talks about him going to Jerusalem. And and this is a time where Jerusalem is obviously part of the the Muslim empire, but the caliph at the time had a Christian mother and she persuades him to allow Christians back into Jerusalem. So this is the time where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is being built. Mm. And there's an expedition from Byzantium to take the uh, stonemasons to Jerusalem. And it's thought that Theodora, the sister of the of the Emperor Sewi, is one of the people who goes um, on this expedition. And uh, Harold Hardrada is, I don't know if he's in charge of it, or he's certainly in charge of, um, kind of protecting the Emperor's sister. Um, and he's on this expedition to Jerusalem, where they found the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, um, which again is kind of, you know, one of these extraordinary things that he's involved with. And this is why he's just the most, I think, kind of um a renaissance <laughs> prince before his yes. time um yeah, definitely. because we haven't mentioned of course that he's a poet as well skaldic poetry is um obtuse to the point where it's incomprehensible to us in you know, the modern age i think but he was uh, a skaldic poet of great renown and the only king to be a, you know to be a, f- a famous poet within his time and it's a shame that kind of the skaldic poetry you know is has so many kind of um limitations to the modern reader that we don't get it at all but i think he's you know kind of renaissance prince so he's he's in jerusalem um he's rising up in the varangian guard until he's brought by the emperor into kind of the varangians of the inner inner palace and this is the, the emperor's elite bodyguard and harold joins the emperor on the reconquest of bulgaria again a big expedition and during this expedition uh, they conquer Bulgaria, head back to Constantinople, and Harold has kind of risen up to being the, the, the right-hand man of the emperor. Unfortunately, the emperor is dying, and in the triumphs in, in Constantinople, after this expedition, the emperor is so, his body is so swollen, it's effectively rotting, that uh, he can't you know, dismount from his horse, he has to be helped. 
And within a few months after this expedition, the emperor dies. And the Empress Zoe, unfortunately, marries a, a much younger and much more attractive man who is, is clearly threatened by Hal Tardrada. And there's a sequence of events which are, are slightly unclear to us because, again, the, the, the saga evidence is very circumspect. But this new emperor effectively mounts a palace coup where he imprisons Zoe and slaughters the Vikings, the Varangians, and brings in a new palace guard, which are a kind of slave troops from one of the Turkic tribes called the Pechenegs, who are great rivals of the Vikings of Kiev. And Harald Hadrada at this time is imprisoned in a cellar. And during the palace coup, the Varangians go and free him. And there's an extraordinary 24-hour period in Byzantium where the Varangians lead an attack on the palace. They rescue Zoe, who had a head shaved and imprisoned in a monastery. And the emperor flees to a, to a monastery. It's not said who, but almost definitely it's Harald Hadrada is sent to get him out of the, of the church. And the saga tells us how the emperor is dragged out of the church and um, on, this, on the, the steps of the church, his eyes are put out. And that effectively mm -hmm. makes him unfit to rule and makes him no longer a political threat. And so Harald Hadrada, the centre of this palace coup, saves the Empress Zoe, who then, because she's the daughter of the previous emperor, marrying her makes you emperor. And Zoe's kind of in her mid-50s at this point, and obviously well past childbearing age. But the Byzantine nobility are clearly sick of allowing the, the whims of um, the Empress Zoe to dictate who's the emperor. And so they can they nominate one of their own to marry her and become the emperor. And obviously for Harold, this is quite an odd moment because he's just put the eyes out of Zoe's previous husband. Um, and no doubt the Byzantines are looking at the Varangians thinking, you know, we've let these barbarians from the north take way too much power. And Harold can kind of sense his position becoming uncertain. And the saga tells us that he asks for permission to go home and the emperor says no because uh, he's accused of taking too much uh, plunder from his conquests. And there was a certain amount of tithe that was supposed to be given to the palace. And uh, on top of that, the palace was kind of plundered during the, the rebellion. And again, Harold is kind of blamed for stealing a lot of stuff from the emperor's palace. And so Harold's not allowed to leave. One night, um, he loads up all his treasure onto three longships. Um, he's in the Golden Horn, which is the kind of enclosed harbour of Constantinople. And each night, the Byzantines would row a heavy chain across the harbour mouth to stop ships coming in or out. And you can still see links of this in the, the Palace Museum in Istanbul. And the saga tells us that Harold had his ships row at this chain. And just before they were about to hit it, he orders all his men to run to the back of the boat to lift up the prow. <laughs> they kind of they ground on the chain and then they all run to the front of the boat and the, the boat slip over. <laughs> and of course, one of the boats, the keel breaks and the ship is sunk and a third of his treasure disappears to the bottom of the Golden Horn. But the other two ships escape and they head back across the Black Sea, again, up up through the Dnipro, uh, back to Kiev. Mm. And, and, and Harold has been sending money back to Kiev to uh, Prince Yaroslav the Wise. Uh, who's the, the ruler in Kiev. And, and there he picks up one of Yaroslav's daughters as his wife and heads home. And the sagas tell us that when he gets back to Norway, he is the richest man who has ever lived in Western Christendom. <laughs> and it's probably true. His fortune is probably extraordinary. And there's a famous uh, saga scene where he arrives back to find his nephew, Magnus the Good, his king in Norway. And again, Harald Hardrada, he's, you know, he's too big a character. You, you can't have someone that big, powerful and important 
in your kingdom without seriously kind of undermining yourself. And Harold is not the man to say to play second fiddle. And so Magnus agrees to uh, share the kingdom with Harold, and Harold promises him, you know, kind of all the treasure that can fit on an ox skin. So he, you know, he tips crates of gold and silver and jewels onto the hide of an ox, and that's in return for half the kingdom. All before he's 30 years old. <laughs> he just turns 30. So, I mean, extraordinary character. And in a sense, for the next 22 years, he does nothing very much, uh, <laughs> apart from fight a few wars in Norway. He's such a larger-than-life character. He is extraordinary. Yeah. He should be much better known and much better thought of, more highly thought of, because when he goes back to Norway, his influence is not the Western church, but the Orthodox church, and he brings back Orthodox monks. He founds Oslo Cathedral. He founds Oslo as a, as a city, and obviously comes to be the capital of Norway. He's not just a warrior. He's a poet. He's a kind of religious reformer. He, you know, he's a city founder. I mean, he really is, I think, a Renaissance prince, you know, way before his time. Except with the Renaissance bit, he had two wives. Well, the, the, the kind of the rules about wives and concubines are very hazy at this point. <laughs> it was a very common thing for medieval kings of this period to have more than one wife. Canute uh, has two wives as well. Yeah, Harold Godwinson. <laughs> Harold Godwinson, yeah. So I think he has two wives. So his, his, his first wife, who was the daughter of King Yaroslav, she bears him daughters, but not sons. So um, mm. there's a, you know, an urgent need for uh, male sons who will carry on your line. And uh, when he gets back to Norway, um, Norway is kind of split. Southern Norway versus Northern Norway. And there's a kind of a split. And Knut had played on that and allied with the Northern Norwegians against the Southern Norwegians. Uh, so Harold, when he gets back to Norway, has to make a dynastic uh, marriage with the Northern Norwegians, which he does do. And, uh, you know, and has sons and sons who go on to rule Norway for the next hundred or so years or, you know, mm. descendants. Again, extraordinary character. So when you come to 1066, you have Harold Godwinson, who I'm very fond of. And I know I'll upset a lot of English listeners here, but he uh, he hasn't done much other than kind of bully the Welsh. <laughs> and William the Conqueror, again, who hasn't done much. He has a very effective fighting force in the Normans, but he's only fought a few battles and they're not huge battles. Compared to Harold Hardrada, who's, who has risen up through a military organisation, the most probably the most sophisticated in the world at the time, in the Western world, the Byzantine army, and understands logistics, battlefield strategies and tactics, and has, you know, risen up through, you know, countless uh, engagements and battles and major pitched battles, and the right hand of the emperor in, in a huge kind of conquest of Bulgaria. And with him, he has this kind of battle-hardened elite of ex-Varangians, professional soldiers, and that army is the one that lands in England in, I think, September 1066, and, and fights the largest shield wall battle in history, uh, which is the Battle of Fulford Gate, again, a battle we almost never... No, I mean, I grew up in York no. and I, I never heard of Battle of Fulford Gate and it was fought two miles from my school. And, and there he absolutely crushes the Northumbrians and Mercians. And the, the kind of defeat is so complete that he then marches out to Stamford Bridge and his army are selling themselves on, on a lovely warm September's day, a bit like today. <laughs> Uh, when Harold Godwinson arrives and a third of the army of Harold Hydrida's army is with the ships and two thirds are without their armour and still the Battle of Stamford Bridge goes on all day and the Vikings are defeated but it's a kind of a close run thing. If Harold Hydrida's army had been ready and prepared I think he would have probably have defeated Harold Godwinson. Who knows? Mm. So this, you know, these are all kind of the, the what-ifs of history. Do you think he actually, did he intend to conquer England or, I mean, how serious was he about his claim to the throne? 
the question of Harold Hardrada's claim to the throne of England always seemed to me bizarre, reading the sagas growing up. Sagas explain it in a term of, you know, you know, one king had promised the throne to his descendants, and Harold wasn't a descendant, but he was the kind of the next king, and it just seemed bizarrely spurious. And I think, you know, with, when you're writing a historical novel, you spend a lot of time thinking through your character's life. Mm. A lot more things come to mind than you actually ever get into a book. And my hunch is that Harold Tardrider's life has been overshadowed by Canute, and Canute is called Canute the Great, and he's the only, apart from Alfred the Great, he's the only king of England to be named Great. And Harold Tardrider's childhood is spent with Canute undermining his brother the king, the seminal moment in his life, the Battle of Sticklestad, which is also the moment of a uh, eclipse of the sun. And I don't know if you remember, there was around the year 2000, 1999, there was an eclipse of the sun. I was in Prague coming back from China at the time, and it was the most extraordinary moment. You know, the, the birds suddenly went quiet as the sky darkened and the, the air grew cold. Mm. And this happens during the Battle of Sticklestad, which is just the most extraordinary moment to have in a, a medieval battle. Canute mm. yeah. has, has kind of undermined his brother during Harold's entire childhood. He's instigated a battle in which Harold's brother is killed and which Harold is wounded and dragged out. Uh, Harold has to go into exile into Russia because of Canute's influence in the West and and the sagas say how, you know, men were out to kill Harold. And so he had to kind of escape the assassins. Harold comes back to Norway at the age of 30 and spends 20 years kind of fighting the Danes, conquering them, and they, they never quite submit. And they're, they're probably really annoying to Harold. And then the throne of England comes vacant. And Tostig, Harold Godmanson's brother, is looking for people who will help him reclaim his earldom of Northumbria. And I think Harold is bored and sees a chance to, to prove himself. I think he thinks he's actually much greater than Canute and I think I probably agree and he thinks this is my moment this is the moment I I do what Canute did mm. and all the things I've done in the east I now can add conquering England which is the kind of the, the fat sheep of medieval Europe um, if you could conquer England it has a stable society, a kind of, uh, you know, law codes, taxation, silver minting systems that just make it an immensely profitable place to to um, to rule if you can. And I think that I think that's what it is. He's he's spent his entire life being driven around by Canute, and he thinks, okay, here's my moment. I can I can one up Canute. You know, in many ways, he should he should become our, our one of our greatest kings um, that we've never heard of. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting that as far as the English are concerned, all of what we've spoken about up to now is ignored because mostly it's not known about very very widely. And from the English perspective, he's the guy that loses first at, at uh, Stamford Bridge and, and doesn't um, doesn't become king and is dead. And, you know, that's all there is to him. Yeah, and kills so many Huskals that when Harold Godmanson meets William the Conqueror, then, you know, yeah. he's he's undermined and scuppered. And if only Harold Hadrada hadn't been there, we'd have had a proper English king. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Mm. Yeah. That's the perspective, isn't it, really? And it's it's an odd one. If you're looking at the wider historical canvas, it 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 kind of it's like you cut a bit out and said, well, we'll just we'll just focus on this bit, and it doesn't doesn't tell the whole story at all. And I agree I agree with what you've said as far as I've ever researched it. It's all about um, Fulford and 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 the the success he has there against you know. Pretty pretty redoubtable resistance, really. Suggests that he would have been very successful if he had been at full strength and prepared at Stamford Bridge. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, I think, because 
1066 is just surrounded with myths and even kind of, you know, Simon Sharma's history of Britain, you know, just relies on the myths. Um, And there's some great histories have been written, which are looking kind of between the facts that we know and working them out. There's a great one called Blood Feud by uh, a guy called Richard Fletcher, who used to live about 10 miles away from me, which looks at this period and looks at the kind of the historiography of trying to work out what has happened. A brilliant, brilliant history. And the thing is, we look at 1066 as the end of Anglo-Saxon England, which in a way it was, but I think actually 1016 is the end of Anglo-Saxon England. Mm. And what, what comes into place after is a kind of Anglo-Danish state. Mm. Yeah. So Godwin is, is the main figure of Shieldwall, and he becomes Canute's right-hand man. And you can see the kind of political vibes in England from the way he names his children. So his first child is called Svein, mm-hmm. who was Canute's father. His second child is called Harold, which is a Viking name. Uh, his next child is called Tostig, again a Viking name. And then when Canute dies, his next children all have Anglo-Saxon names. You know, his, I think the last one is Wolfmoth, who's named after his father. And so the Anglo-Danish state of 1016, that is where we get Huskulls from. Mm. The Anglo-Saxon name for that would probably be Thanes. So the, the, the famous warriors that we think, you know, were dying to defend Anglo-Saxon England at the Battle of Hastings are actually uh, a Danish term. And England becomes the epicentre of skaldic poetry and uh, Viking uh, adventurers come to Winchester as a kind of port of call. And so in many ways, it is still Anglo-Saxon England, but in many ways, it's not the Anglo-Saxon England of Alfred the Great. And I think that dies in 1016 Hmm. and something different happens in that 50 years between 1060 and 1066. Uh, It would be fascinating to see what that would have grown into. Hmm whether it would have changed English history much or not, or not at all. It's a really rich area, I think, for novelistic uh, investigation. Mm. I don't think most people realise that half of that time between 1016 and 1066, we were ruled by Danes. Yeah. You know, people just think, oh, it was Edward the Confessor. And it's like, yeah, but before that, we had can you Harold Harefoot and Harthur Canoe, you know, three Danish kings. In the first half of the 11th century, we had half our kings were Danish and half our kings were English. And people don't realise that. They've just got this idea that we were always English and then suddenly the Normans come along. But it was very much a melting pot before that. (laughs) It's true. And of course, I didn't mention that uh, Godwin marries um, a Viking princess. Mm. And so Harold Godwin's son, is half Danish. And, you know, we're not exactly sure how those languages were different. Um, they were similar enough that they probably were at some point, you know, intelligible mm. or very strong accents um, as opposed to different languages. So uh, Harold Godmanson, in a sense, is, you know, he's kind of half Danish. He's got a Danish, he's got a Viking name. The culture he's growing up in, in Winchester, is a court full of Viking warriors. Mm. Anglo-Saxon nobility has been largely kind of wiped out or discredited. The traditional mm. Wessex Anglo-Saxon nobility has been wiped out or discredited during Ethelred's reign. And so the people who have stepped in are kind of, you know, Viking warlords and Viking poets. And this obviously is the time we think maybe Beowulf might have been written or written down um, with Anglo-Saxon clergy. So you have a kind of odd mix of Anglo-Saxon clergy and Viking nobility. So very different to what we think of as the England that is lost in 1066. And in many ways, kind of much more interesting. Mm. Harold Hardrada, he didn't come to York by accident. If you're going to choose somewhere to invade England and you're a Viking, York is actually a sensible place to do it because a lot of that area was still Dane law. It was very much Danish orientated rather than English orientated. 
more than Danish, Norwegian. Mm. The Kingdom of York as a Viking kingdom often looked to Norway for its kings, even though a lot of the settlers were from you know Denmark. Um, so, you know, the last king of York was Eric Bloodaxe, who's Norwegian. So, yeah, so absolutely. Uh, York is a tradition of looking to Norwegian kings as their rulers, as a counter to the, the Wessex takeover of England. So it's fascinating. All It's absolutely fascinating kind of history, and it's pivotal. And the kind of the story we tell ourselves is so less interesting than the facts, if, you know, if we can ever get back to the facts. And then we have this image of Harold Hardrodden. He was, to me, he was the Superman of the 11th century. I think it's unfortunate for him that he did die at Stamford Bridge. There was a great moment in, in 2016, which is the 950th anniversary of... Mm. the Battle of Hastings, 1066. And I was going to the, the reenactment at Stamford Bridge and I was told this guy's going who claims to be a descendant of Harold Hardrada, Icelandic guy. And at first I was slightly sceptical and then I, I was driving there and I had a fear that he'd be kind of spindly or, you know, kind of a little weed and I thought oh, that'd be so disappointing. <laughs> His name is Olaf Viking Sigurdsson and his grandfather was at the Berlin Olympics and a weightlifting champion. Um, his father was Mr. Universe, and he was one of Gorbachev's bodyguards during the Reykjavik uh, <laughs> summit in the 80s. I've got a photo of me against him. I'm six foot, and I look like a dwarf next to this guy. He's um, he's about six foot five, broad <laughs> as a kind of ox, with big kind of shaggy blonde hair and beard. And I was just delighted. And he's he's descended from Egil Skallagrim, son the great poet, all the great people in, in Icelandic history. And he's one of Haraldardrada's descendants. So that was just brilliant to, to see. Yeah. And the other very interesting thing about Harald Hardrada is medieval kings and uh, car parks. We you know Richard III was found under <laughs> yeah. a council car park in Leicester. And Harald Hardrada is the same. Mm -hmm. He was originally buried in uh, York Minster and then moved back to Norway. The Helgester Friary, which in the 17th century was got rid of during the Reformation, and it's now a stretch of kind of municipal road. And so that's where he's buried, probably. So another king lying under a road somewhere. <laughs> I read that uh, a German chronicler, Adam Bremen, had described mm. him as the thunderbolt of the north, which I thought sounded pretty appropriate because of his impact on, on the whole region and, and on, on history generally. Yeah, an extraordinary character. In a sense, though, I suppose... Despite his, his fabulous career, it was his impact on history. Uh, I guess his impact on history is Harold Godmanson losing the Battle of Hastings. <laughs> I guess he unites Norway. In Norway, he's probably a much more seminal figure. He unites Norway kind of finally, founds Oslo. But then again, Norway again becomes conquered by the Danes and then the Swedes. Mm. And then he becomes independent, what, 100 odd years ago. Mm. So I guess in, in terms of kind of lasting impact, Battle of Hastings is his kind of major achievement, <laughs> uh, which, you know, as an Englishman, I feel. Defeating Harold at the Battle of Hastings, even though he wasn't there. <laughs> yeah, but he could have been so much more. And I think you know, he, he is so much more than the Thunderbolt of the North. He is so much more than kind of a terrible Viking from the North. He's a much more interesting, complex, uh, artistic figure, I mm. think. Yeah. And that's something that's often uh, overlooked with a number of, of people who are, who are, if you like, warriors. Often it's a very one-dimensional historical perspective that we have. Yeah. And it's not totally unusual for them to have other other skills and interests. But because we focus on, oh, well, he fought that battle and he won that battle. So that's his life. That's what it was all about. And, and often that isn't the case. Yeah, well, I guess the chronicles are so 
fix on battles because battles are seen as kind of you know, judgment. Yeah. They're very clear judgments mm. from God. Mm. Battles, natural disasters, you know, floods, fires, thunderstorms. Yeah. Um, these, these are all things that kind of stand out in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle because they're, they're clear messages from God. Yeah. They don't tend to say, today, Harold wrote a poem. Uh... <laughs> yeah. Although, you know, kind of the sagas do. And, and the way that skaldic poetry works is that it's very kind of complex alliterative r- r- rhyming. Skaldic poetry survived in Iceland and modern Icelandic is quite similar to um, Old Norse. And so we know pretty clearly that the poems are source material. And when you're looking as a novelist, it's not often that you get first-hand quotes. Mm. In fact, apart from Hal Tardrada, we probably have no quotes from any medieval king. Everything is reported second-hand. Mm. Whereas we know those skaldic poems, mm. they're almost certainly Harold's words. And so even though they're obtuse and difficult to understand and, and full of symbolism, like the beard of Thor, the, the Valkyrie, you know, so it's all full of Norse alliterative symbolism, which is very obtuse to us now. But he's speaking to us. We're hearing his words, you know, across a thousand years, which is quite extraordinary. Mm. I'm a big lover of Old English poetry, which is much more forgiving in translation. And it's a shame he, he wasn't an Old English poet instead. Mm. So what is your favourite part of Harold Hardrada's story? For me, it's the jumping the ship over the chains. It's such an extraordinary story. I think my favourite bit of writing, I think the Battle of Stickelstad, mm. Eclipse of the Sun, um, was extraordinary to write, having been in an eclipse. Constantinople was extraordinary because, you know, Istanbul is one of my, my favourite cities and uh, I just love the, the sense of history there. I started writing the book in Hong Kong. I came back in 2016, 15, sorry, and I was teaching creative writing on a Greek island and I got there and I suddenly thought, oh, my God, I have completely failed uh, in the, my draft so far to capture what a Greek island must have been like for a Viking from Norway. <laughs> the kind of, you know, we see beauty. And I, I think, you know, probably he would have seen beauty, but the warmth, the kind of the warm sea, <laughs> the kind of outdoors life. You could just kind of see the Vikings probably spending, you know, tons of their time topless. Yeah, in trousers, you know, yeah. uh, getting tanned <laughs> like leather, like proper sailors. <laughs> and so I think for me, some of the most kind of fun bits were those very late chapters that I added, where I kind of brought that experience of the Greek islands into the novel. In many ways, we're very similar to our um, kind of Viking Anglo-Saxon forebears. The Byzantines nicknamed the Varangians the Emperor's Wineskins because they drank so much. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, you have these Varangians who are used to, or these Norwegians who are used to beer and not particularly strong beer at that, suddenly making it down into the Mediterranean where there's wine and there's heat and there's kind of, you know, beautiful aquamarine seas. And so it was a kind of a, a fairly hedonistic mm. uh, series of chapters that I wrote and where they're just kind of bullying Arab pirates, you know, with their kind of their Viking shock tactics. I think those are my favourite bits. Yeah, I, I kind of think his last images would be, you know, maybe of a sparkling blue sea and feeling it, you know, a flagon of wine in his hand. Uh, it'd be fascinating to know. Such a fabulous story, mm. the whole thing. Mm. So it must be difficult to come down from writing Viking Fire, really. So what are you doing at the moment? What are you working on at the moment? Yeah, so I've been a, a bit distracted um, by writing for Games Workshop and Warhammer. I wanted to have a bit of a break. I'm very proud of Viking Fire. I think it's probably my technically most accomplished novel. Uh, my wife disagrees. She prefers Shield Wall because she loves Godwin as a character. And I love Godwin. And I love Edmund Ironside. 
scenes in Shield War were some of the hardest to write. I didn't love Howard Hardrider in the same way when I started writing his story. But by the end, I really uh, liked him. And I, I just felt after Viking Fire, I wanted a bit of a break. And that break has gone on a bit long, I think. And I'm starting to itch to get back to Hastings. And mm. I just kind of, you know, I read a book of old English poetry and I just feel the alliterative rhythm. With Shieldwall, I set myself very high standards and I, I try not to use any words of French derivation. It's fairly natural for me because, you know, being a northerner, <laughs> I tend to like short words rather than long words. I like kind of simple sentences rather than kind of complex, you know, writing, which seems to kind of naturally extend from Anglo-Saxon. And so, yeah, that, that kind of magic of using that language and just playing with old English poetry and old English kind of poetic devices, it keeps me up at <laughs> night. It's so exciting. Uh, I can kind of salivate thinking about it. The problem is my Games Workshop stuff has become, you know, so successful. The moment they kind of booked me up for two years, I, I don't want to wait two years to write this, you know, Hastings. So I've I've started I've started work um, and I'm, I'm spending my week now. Yes. Um, so I do kind of three days on on one novel and two days on the next. So people are always asking me about Hastings, and um, and I promise you that Hastings is coming. <laughs> you know, it's a lot of pressure. Mm. You know, it's, it's the one Hastings novel I'll ever write in my life, uh, so I have to get it right. Mm. And Viking Fire, I was I felt technically was just you know perfect um, for, for the storyline that I was given, and so I just needed to take a break, and I wanted to I wanted to come back to Hastings, kind of fully infused and fully kind of fired up. Uh, and I've been fired up for a couple of years now and promising it's coming, but it really is coming. Well, that's great to hear because I think it, it, there is a pressure, yeah. as you say. I mean, you, you know that you haven't finished something. That's the thing. And it does get to you a bit in terms of, yeah, OK, I need to find time to do it because it's still there. It's hanging there. But I also need to be enthusiastic about it because if you're writing something you're not enthusiastic about, that's a bad idea. <laughs> Yeah, and I see Shield Wall and Viking Fire as kind of as preludes to the, you know, the the masterpiece, <laughs> um, the, the the proper novel, which is about the proper subject, which is about the inspiration from the whole thing, which is the Battle of Hastings. And I I don't know about you, but I always kind of I don't particularly worry about whether something will sell. I worry about sitting on my deathbed and um, asking myself, you know, uh, will you regret not doing mm. this? Mm. And um, in many ways, the Games Workshop stuff was me thinking, if I don't write something for Games Workshop, because I've been involved in the hobby since I, you know, since the hobby began uh, when I was 16, uh, I will be on my deathbed and I will regret it. Um, and so uh, Hastings is exactly the same. You know, touch wood, uh, nothing's going to happen to me. But if I get, if you know, I will not be on my deathbed not having written Hastings. Mm. If I had a kind of terminal, um, you know, a terminal... Uh, prognosis tomorrow i would next day i would sit down and start writing hastings um it will be written uh it is the the book uh, you know i want to write yeah i i know what you mean I, I, when i wrote the last wars of the roses novel i, I just had to it had to be done mm. but I, I didn't want to feel as if i'd left everything unsaid but equally i didn't want to approach it thinking oh god i've got to get this done what a pain sort of thing i needed to be up for it yeah and it sounds as if you're up for you're up for hastings yeah I, I i do wonder my editor thinks oh hastings is overdone and i think he's completely wrong and i actually think that there's not enough on hastings uh, it could be two novels i think it'd be kind of like um henry mantel's uh cromwell series you know i could see hastings easily over kind of a couple of novels but to convince my editor i just have to write them and make sure they're good enough mm -hmm. yeah yeah 
if the Tudors yeah. are still not overdone when there are so many books out about the Tudors, Hastings is definitely not <laughs> overdone. Yeah, it's true. The, the, the problem with the Tudors, though, is that they're... Well, I used to say this, and I think it's probably changed since I started writing Shieldwall. Um, I used to say, well, you know, the problem with the Vikings is they're not very mm. um, sexy on film because with the Tudors, you can have bodices and, you know, there's lots of <laughs> women in kind of tight dresses with a, you know, uh, tight bodices and things. Um, and there's lots of, you know, great stuff for the costume department. But clearly, you know, Vikings yeah. have, you know, taken over the screen for the last 10 mm. years or so. So, you know, look at Game of Thrones, you know, men in... In, in wooden shirts and steel armor, yeah. uh, can be very sexy. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, not just a book or a series of books, but a, a TV series as well. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. <Same> high. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for talking to us today, Justin. It's been absolutely wonderful. Oh, it's been a pleasure. I hope everybody's learned a little bit more about Harold Hardrada and is thinking of him as, like I say, the Superman of the 11th century, because I think he is such an <laughs> underrated character out of the three of 1066. I think it's because we are so Anglo-centric in our history that we only think of him in 1066, but he had such an amazing career. I always saw Viking Fire as a kind of mirror image to King Harold's saga. Viking Fire looks mainly at Harold before he's 30, and King Harold's saga looks mainly at Harold after he's 30. So a sense, those are kind of companion books. Mm. Didn't seem much point in me kind of telling the, the last 20 years of his life. All the really exciting stuff. Not just exciting, it's extraordinary. Mm. If you had an English medieval king who had helped reconquer the Mediterranean, had put the eyes of, of a you know Byzantine emperor, possibly become lover of either the, the emperor herself or her sister, uh, or both, been to Jerusalem, helped to take the stonemasons who found the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. This would be, he would have kind of TV series about this guy. <laughs> and being a poet, and founding cities, and reforming the church. You know, what an extraordinary character. Mm. There you go. Here, here endeth the lesson. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've certainly learned a lot. <laughs> Brilliant. It's been lovely to talking to you both, and you've, you've got me so excited about Vikings again. <laughs> the Hastings novel is drawing closer by the moment. We've done our job. <laughs> yeah, we'll be we'll be waiting for Hastings. And you'll come back on and talk to us. <laughs> Wonderful. I look yeah. forward to it. <laughs> come back on and talk to us when Hastings is ready. <laughs> OK. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you very much, Justin. And we'll talk to you soon. So thanks very much to Justin. That was fabulous. Um, Harold Hardrad is one of my favourite characters from history, so I really enjoyed talking to him about that. Do join us next time when we will have a couple of very special guests joining us for our Christmas special, looking back on the year we've just had and the year to come and possibly the best Christmas song ever, maybe not. <laughs> I've been Sharon Bennett Connolly. And I'm Derek Burks. Thank you very much for listening today. And if you enjoyed our podcast, why not subscribe to ensure you don't miss the next one? Goodbye.